Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Working in philanthropy where you have access to so many different people, uh, organisations, sectors, and what you bring to the table is not only your sort of experience and insights but is funding is um, I can't describe it any other way than saying it's just incredibly privileged. Those are the wise words of Harriet McCallum. Harriet is Senior Program Manager at the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation. A short bit of housekeeping and we'll get right back to Harriet. Before we kick off today, I just want to express my gratitude to you, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in each week and supporting Humans of Purpose as we close in on 150 episodes. I'm especially grateful to those of you who have chosen to actively support the podcast by becoming Patreon supporters. Rich has joined us this week to take us up to 17, inching us closer to our sustainability target of 30 supporters. So a big thanks to Rich for your support. A big shout out also to our Patreon family of supporters, including Tanvir, Lucia, Judy, Jules, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. If you want to join our Patreon community and support the growth of Humans of Purpose, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. Today, as I mentioned, I'm talking to my good friend, Harriet McCallum, who is Senior Program Manager at the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation. Harriet is also a board member at L2R Dance. She was a graduate of last year's Williamson program in 2019 and does a raft of community work. She's got an amazing diverse background in community and civic activism, volunteering, capacity building and community development, as well as philanthropy. She has close ties to East Timor, its civic leaders, people and the country itself and is a fanatical North Melbourne supporter. She knows philanthropy inside out and is a great leader with hands-on experience in the sectors she now helps to fund through her work at Lord Mayor's. I really enjoyed my conversation with Harriet, and I'm sure you will too. Terrific to have you with us, Harriet. Thank you so much for making the trip down from the peninsula today. Thanks for having me, Mark. I feel honoured. I feel chuffed. Uh, we were lucky enough to spend a big year together meeting and then uh, in Williamson. Yeah. But before, before we touch on that and much more, um, there's so much to learn from you today and to hear about your own journey. I thought I'd leave it to you to take us into your world a bit and um, talk to me and our audience a bit about how you got into the space you're in today. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Um, well, I think that my journey uh, where I am today was probably shaped the most from my late adolescence, early adulthood, where I had um, a privilege of engaging and, and working with East Timorese students and uh, the National Council of Timorese Resistance to support their fight for independence um, following the occupation of their, their country by Indonesia in 1975 with the full support of consecutive Australian governments. And um, I guess I'd always been involved in politics through my, my parents. Um, uh, they were very engaged in politics as well as strongly um, connected to our community that, w- that was you know quite a, a politically engaged community in the inner north of Melbourne. Um, and... Uh, so, yeah, when I was at university, I, I engaged with uh, University Students for East Timor, which was a solidarity group working with students uh, who were fighting for their independence in East Timor. And I had the opportunity to travel there when it was still an occupied territory, and which was, you know, in hindsight, now that I have children, it's like 
this, I can't believe my mum let me go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, she was a single mum at the time and um, I was 19 and, you know, wanted to go and change the world as, as you do. And I remember ringing her after we got there via Bali and we got there and um, you could call on these um, these Indonesian telecom booths inside this uh, civic building and I remember I rang mum and I said, oh, we're not going to stay here for a week. We're actually going to stay 10 days longer. And she just said, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> and I could just – and then I realised that she was sort of counting the hours that we were in this country. And um, So she's, she was worried but yeah, probably saw that you sure. had um, that sort of a strong desire or social justice-driven desire to, to be part of that and be over there. And Yeah. I, I remember her saying to me that, you know, she was nervous. Obviously, we were going into, you know, an occupied country with large military and we were supporting the resistance to that military occupation. Um, I, I went with close friends and actually I went with um, my husband, <laughs> who is my husband now, who was who was one of my closest friends. And um, so I think that helped um, that, that we were there together. And our parents knew each other and they were obviously talking about it, um, what we were doing. And I remember her saying to me when I was leaving that I was going to be okay because we were doing a good thing. Um, and I know that she was probably telling herself that <laughs> as well as me. And, you know, I know I know certainly things happen to people when they're doing good things, but it, it did kind of, it, she validated or, you know, understood that, you know, that um, I'd, I'd, I'd become a person really passionate about injustice, and that was that was through my upbringing. So she kind of created me. And were you studying your BA at the time and you, before social work? Or yeah, so I was doing a Bachelor of Arts, um, Psychology and Politics, and I was going to become a psychologist. <laughs> That's what I was going to do. Um, and after spending time in East Timor, and 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 also after this initial trip, we went back in two thousand after they'd successfully voted for their independence, but the whole country had been razed, and and many people had been displaced and, and killed. And the students invited us back uh, to help set up an alternative learning uh, centre because the university had been destroyed. Everything in the university had been destroyed, and their books and the buildings. Um. And so we set up this alternative learning space and we're teaching English and, and computers and um, but we're also self-organising. And I, I realised from my um, subsequent experience in international development in Cambodia and as my work in, in um, community sector in Australia that that was such a um, – f- there was such freedom at that time. We were supported by AVI, Australian Volunteers International, and the My Foundation actually gave us 20, 20 grand to pay for our airfares and our insurance. It was my first experience of philanthropy. Was um, that a common thing back then? I mean, no. it feels like that's not a common thing so much anymore. No. Well, I don't know about anymore, but it certainly um, it was great leadership, I think, yep. of the My Foundation at the time to um, to support a group of student activists yep. to go over and work with student activists over there and, and build this education space. Um, I was just thinking like, you know, with, to get to Timor now with the, with the airfares and, you know, what whatnot and um, to find yourself as a volunteer would be a challenge. 
Yeah, so a lot of us worked all the summer yeah. and saved up money. Yeah. Um, and but we also got a small stipend that was like one hundred and fifty dollars a week through AVI mm. Australian Volunteers mm. International, which was great. They took us on, um, and, and supported us, uh, even though we'd we'd sort of were going anyway. Um, um, so yeah, so so then we, we we were back over there, um, working working in Timor, um, and spent a year doing, you know, what what the students kind of identified as being the greatest need and there was um, a, a group particularly for young women they were doing incredible work developing numeracy and literacy programs right across East Timor for, for women and, you know, extraordinarily high rates of illiteracy, particularly for the older women. Um, they were just absolutely trailblazing. Um, jumping ahead, all of our friends in East Timor now are doing incredible jobs in civil society and in government and they're, you know, they're government advisors. They're, um, one of my close friends, Lita, is a deputy speaker of the parliament. Um, she's well on her way. She's, she's going to be uh, a really powerful force in that country. Um, yeah, a lot of our friends are leading really fantastic NGOs um, looking at uh, anti-corruption mm. and really important issues. So um, now that um, we are much older, I feel so privileged that I got to meet those people and work with those people at the time who are now my dear friends um, and are incredible individuals. And so is that your big, because um, it sounds a bit like community building or community development or how do you kind of describe that activity? Because it's interesting, you know, it's like going into a country that's been ripped apart and helping them to build a lot of the, the things required to you know, start that process of reformation. Yeah. I mean, I think at the time we were going with instinct. We were young, so we're 21 when we all, I was 21 when we all went over there. But I think that essentially what we did is what is often recommended now in working with communities, like actually just go and be with people in their space, listen to them um, and listen some more, ask good questions. Yeah. Um, and and build from there, and that and that's that takes time and it takes patience. Um, having then um, gone and worked in Cambodia with a with a great program um, that was funded by the European Union and Ausaid, I realised you know the difference of that time in in Timor versus going and working in a country that's got had a lot of sort of aid projects and and a lot of um, you know, um, that, you know, it was quite some time after after the war that that we were there in Cambodia that projects get cooked up in Geneva or somewhere else in the world about what Cambodians need, and then the funding comes in and you've got to deliver it. And so, the project I worked on was great in Cambodia, but the reporting I had to do back to the donors was ridiculous. Like I just yeah. thought, have any of you actually come? Yeah, and sat with the people here that are doing the work mm. and then experience the communities that these people are working with to um, maybe you'd get a better sense of what we should be reporting on. Now, that's why I like talking to you is I think you come at what you do, which is now philanthropy with a very community lens and like mm. that, you know, what you said before about like listening to people and just, you know, asking them what they need or what what they what their circumstances are and being patient. Yeah. That's stuff that you say now, like you then is you now. So much, yeah, yeah. You know, in your approach, and like 
everything that you show about your way of doing things is very much, I think, mirrored by maybe what that experience was for you. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I often think I could always listen more, um, and I think that's a desire and um, to, to be able to have more time to to spend with people and listen to people. Um, yeah, which I, which I try and do as much as I can in any job. Um, I guess now in philanthropy, I listen to people who are doing the work, so that are the, that are the doers, um, that maybe are in the organisations or the types of roles that I used to be in. Um, so yeah, I, I try and continue the same approach, uh, even though I'm quite removed from the direct work now. You bring that lens, which is important, because I, I think there are still a lot of people, and this is not just philanthropy, it's across all organisations, where you've got that traditional breakdown between the, the backers or the funders and the doers, and sometimes there's that knowledge, the latency isn't great or the knowledge gets lost between that, mm. so you, you don't get good overlay. Like what you were mm. saying before, that example that you gave, like how the reporting of things was just onerous and not really congruent with Mm. you know, the way things actually work. Yeah. And it was all quantitative and I thought, don't they really want to know the substance behind these numbers? Yeah. You know, um, that's – but in the end I just did it because we needed our next amount of money, so. <laughs> and because you became or discovered, you know, that, that like, realised the importance of listening, you know, social work was the next step and um, you go on to do a number of really interesting things in sort of um, – Government, local governments, um, mm. and uh, also not for profits. Mm. Love to hear a bit about that and kind of what comes next for you as a result of that. Is team all learning? Yeah. So I, oh yeah. So I thought I was going to be a psychologist, and I was really, um, I was mentored by um, a, a psychologist in East Timor actually when we were we were students working there, and um, he's a Jesuit priest, um, Peter Hosking, and. He had a long background of working with people who experienced trauma and he had a long, strong connection to Timor as well. And so uh, many of my friends had experienced imprisonment and torture and were displaying uh, the impact of those experiences. Um, many of them had obviously had lost close family and friends. Um, and so I, I realised that I wanted a, a career in, in being able to work directly with people who'd experienced trauma. Um, and how that affected them. So I came back and finished my arts degree and went into social work from there. And then after social work, I went into um, asylum seeker services and refugee, refugee settlement and then women's health, um, and uh, which enabled me to continue to work with refugee communities as well. But then I went and specialised in um, uh, sexual assault services, actually, which continuing that uh, I guess, focus on trauma. Um, and that's where I got a lot of skills working with people who'd experienced trauma early on in life and and that was and how that shapes how people develop mm. and, and, and become. And that was incredible experience for me and I think gave me great insight into not only people who have their own trauma but people who carry perhaps the trauma of their parents, uh, grandparents, um, and then what happens when a whole community is traumatised. Mm. And so um, interestingly, um, so I worked a lot on trauma and, and, and people understanding the, their capacity of survival um, and and, um, and their strengths um, and resilience, that word's used a lot now, wasn't when I was in the mm. trauma field. Mm. Um, 
And now I found my, find myself working in community philanthropy, the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, where I'm focused on working with a whole lot of different stakeholders around how we build community resilience to extreme weather natural disasters, mm. which is obviously a, a very pertinent issue at the moment. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah. we should touch on that. I mean, we were talking before about our breaks and I told you that um, I was gleefully um, plodding around in Chile, hiking a bit in Patagonia and then got back to Santiago and I'd had a big break from social media and, and internet. Mm. But I had this plume of um, fog one day it was just in the air yeah. in Santiago, read later that that plume had floated across the Pacific from um, the bushfires in Australia. So, mm. you know, we're all so connected uh, wherever we are in the world. But for me, that was just like a um, a real kind of uh, a shock, not only of the how much I've missed, but sort of the devastation abroad. And also, I guess, like the global nature of it all and how, you know, we might sort of see this as, um, you know, one uh, – Shocking major national event, but we may well see more and more of these, not just here, but um, abroad too in coming years with sort of the state of change and the climate. Yeah. Um, it has been something that's impacted really widely. And I was saying to um, a relative the other night who's been working in area of climate change for a really long time that even though the smoke that's covered everywhere um, has been quite depressing, um, not to mention just horrible, um, although what we're getting is like nothing compared to what it must be like yeah. where the fires have been or are. But, you know, it's actually my reflection on it is it's been important and, and almost it's not a good thing, but I think that, the people outside those disaster zones need to experience some of the impact yeah. in order to perhaps. That's a really interesting reflection. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. I mean, I think that when, you know, disasters and major emergencies happen and they're elsewhere, people can go, oh, that's terrible and they can feel for people, but they're not. You can sort of go about your everyday life and just. Yeah, proximity um, is everything, hey? Yeah, and I, I think that obviously you know, natural disasters and, and the compounding nature of them, so the drought and then and then obviously the heat waves and then the fires, um, is, you know, it's just revealing to people what we're being told by scientists for for decades and that is that, you know, this this will become our, our new normal um, with increasing um, temperatures. So, you know, yeah, even though it doesn't reflect a good thing, it reflects a very terrible thing. I think it's, you know, it's been important that we've had to share that um, with the communities that have lost the most. Yeah. And, I mean, the devastation to species and climate and communities is kind of unspeakable and I think people in these situations react the only way they know how. So there's the outpouring of grief and concern on social media seems to be the first thing after yeah. the news cycle. But then it's sort of what comes next. Mm. You know, what should we do? What should people do? And, you know, mm. how do we give out everything? And we had like an interesting chat um, over coffee just before we started about how sometimes those efforts can be a bit misdirected or not that effective. Yeah, I was pleased to see really early on some good articles. Um, a colleague of mine in the philanthropic sector, Christian Siebert, uh, wrote a really good article early on around how to best support um, and use your, use your giving, your philanthropy uh, following these events. And Dan Andrews also came out and just urged people not to be giving 
um, things, food and clothing, but actually to donate and 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 let communities work out what it is they need mm. before getting a whole lot of donations. And that's not to say that some of the the material donations haven't been needed and been really important and useful. Um, it's just that, um, yeah, I, I think that going back to listening yeah. <laughs> to communities and, and 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 really being with them and not assuming they need what they need um, is is going to be an important part of their recovery. And it's been wonderful to see all of the donations that have come in. I mean, I've, I've been quite overwhelmed and I felt a little bit uncomfortable with the donations that have come from people, individuals from much poorer countries. Yeah. Particularly in the Pacific, you know. There's both sides of the coin. I mean, you've got um, people who, and they say that people can at least afford to give are often the most generous. Yeah. But then you look at kind of, <laughs> there was something doing the rounds on um, Twitter the other day, which I try and stay away from, but this this line sort of picked up on me. Um, a bunch of comics that I listened to on podcasts were giving Jeff Bezos a really hard time for giving uh only a million dollars to support the Australian bushfires. And so I told um, my wife, Louise, about it. I sort of said, oh, isn't it funny that, you know, Bezos gave a million and he's, it's probably for him like $2. But she rightly came back at me and said, well, um, the, the whole the context of the story was that he'd given far less than some other local mm. people who were far less wealthy. So, you know, you, you got the Hensworths and these guys giving $3 million and, the, you know, local actors and whatnot. But um, she rightly sort of said to me, well, look, Jeff Bezos has nothing to do with Australia. Why would he care? And he's still given quite a sum of money. So you, you really get a lot of shit hung on the rich but also on the very, you know, like it's it's sort of so unbalanced how people give and why they give and the motivations. And I think it all kind of in a crisis comes to the fore because of um, the echo chamber of social media, news and media. Yeah, I mean, I think um – I mean, maybe it's happened with other major disasters, but the publicness of people's giving has been quite oh, yeah. interesting as well. Oh, like, yeah. you know, there are plenty of people who will have quietly given a substantial amount of money f- for them. Yep. And, you know, they're not getting any articles or social media posts, you know, yep. um, written about them. Um, I'm not to say that in any way that's why people are giving, but... Um, it is. It's just interesting that sort of the the telling, if you like, of of how much and um, uh, that that's been. I guess just something I've observed. Well, the optics of it all. So there, there's yeah. like a separate element of the actual giving is the revealing of the giving, yeah, and how it's kind of framed. And maybe that's always been part of it, but I, it's felt very much to me like quite overwhelming. How um, the first thing is people's need to make a statement about what they're doing and how immediate their response is. But then it takes time to obviously make real change. And, you know, another conversation we were having before was about I raised this article that I saw about a bit of outcry that a few of the major um, mm. not-for-profits had, had distributed a very small amount of their millions that they received in response from mm. the local community. And then, you know, I think you very rightly said, um, look, these things take time. Mm. Got to be patient and, you know, you'd hope that they mm. are getting out to the communities first to figure out what they want. Mm. But people who maybe are not from the sector and don't understand it, um, they, they kind of expect this unrealistic link between a donation and its immediate impact. Mm. Yeah, I, I think people want to see impact if they've given money and and it will take longer than three and a half weeks, <laughs> <laughs> which, is all, I mean, has sort of felt quite... Um, 
you know, it feels longer if you like. It feels like we've been enduring, enduring this fire crisis mm. for, for longer than that. But that's all it's been. And, um, you know, I, I think that m- most people would want there to be some good governance and due diligence um, put around this amount of money. Um, obviously these were um, not unpredicted events, but um, the nature of them and the people that have been impacted by them certainly, you know, wouldn't have been easily predicted for sure so therefore you know that the outpouring of giving has been incredible um and the organizations that have been given that money are going to need um you know they're going to need to spend it in the right way that the communities um need it and they also need to yeah build those structures around how they're going to disperse and use that money um and i'm sure all of that is all happening um very professionally. <laughs> um, well said. Yeah. Very well said. I think very fair appraisal of um, really a challenging time where none of these organisations can expect, could have expected um, this type of event, event or the or the huge amount of money coming into it, just a few of them. Yeah. So it's sort of like, you know, they're resource constrained as well. They're not for profits. So, yeah. Well, they'll have to get resources in in yeah. order to manage this and that's, that's completely um, understandable as well. I think that, I mean, makes me think about um, how you use philanthropic philanthropic dollars to build the capacity of of the civil society mm. not for not for profit for purpose sector and and um, you know and, and being responsive to to what the sector is saying you know is, is going to be useful and, and what individual organizations say it's going to be useful and I think most people sort of expect that you give money it goes in and it goes straight out the door and yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if anyone would have that expectation of any other type of organisation. Yeah, I But agree. the not-for-profits, they're supposed to be, oh, well, they don't take any money, but of course yeah. they need money. Um, there's got to be some kind of management fee because there's administrative costs on the organisation to disperse that money. Yeah. And so you, a not-for-profit um, can't take a loss for every service or, you know, amount of money it delivers into a program. Yeah. It's got to kind of at least break even. Yeah. Um, yeah, and not-for-profit doesn't mean... For loss. Not, not for revenue. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I think I've, you know, I've heard a few um, key people in the sector sort of refer to, you know, maybe we shouldn't be using not-for-profit. Maybe it should be for purpose or civil society or, you know, uh, rather than because I think it it does create a perception that somehow they are fully staffed by volunteers and, yep. you know, they don't have any overheads and which, you know, obviously anyone who's ever worked in yeah. the sector knows that, that, that that's... Um, there are significant costs with with doing this work. I'm actually with you on that. I think for purpose is a much better explanation of the work of not for profits. Yeah. My only um, gripe with it is it's such a um, broad church, so mm. to speak. So you've got your your um, volunteer run, you've got your businesses or social enterprises that call themselves for purpose now. So yeah. the, the company form of not for profit is mm. probably, you know, in an ideal world, you could say we're a for purpose organization and we run as a not for profit entity or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I know there's obviously, you know, there's legislation and tax categories yeah. where you, you know, fall into particular um, uh, types of organizations. I mean, Interesting coming into philanthropy, I now use the word charities a lot and I yeah. never used the word charities. I don't like that word at all. I don't either, but it's an old-fashioned word yeah. and speaks to sort of a benevolent mm. um, style yeah. way of, of, of doing the work. But, um, 
that's what we have in legislation. Yep. You're, you're registered as a charity. So I think, um, yeah, but, but, but no one really will use that. Although I use charitable sector and that's really broad too. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I've been using um, the term civil society quite a bit and yep. I, I looked it up online just to make sure that I was using it correctly. I mean, civil society just, it does, it's just that non-government um space and i think that civil society also then captures your organizations that are um you know wanting to shine a light on critical issues in our society or push for social change as well so you know um and and many of them you know most of them are charitable mm. <laughs> um in in their status and for purpose as well so um yeah, and I, it's used a bit more, I think, in the States, uh, North America, civil society, but um, it also is used a lot in international development. So when I worked in countries like Timor and Timor-Leste and uh, Cambodia, um, the civil society sector was the non-government sector and they were the ones that were there to advocate and to respond uh, to the social and environmental uh, issues, needs of, of, of their community or their, their country. And I actually, yeah, I really like that term. Yeah, that they're there for the. For well, the it's good because it sort of speaks to a bit more about that relationship between government and community as well, and um, civil groups to kind of take um, political matters or civil action into their own hands a bit. That's right, it, and it includes that political aspect, mm-hmm. which I think when people think of charities or not for profits, they're just like, oh, well, you know, they're there doing good, um, addressing some problem. Um, Whereas civil society gives that far more active role in, well, yeah, they're, they're doing all this great work, um, but they're also pushing for change and for yep. something better. Yep. Um, so that's, I guess that's a term I'm kind of using a bit more now. It's yeah. funny because we've been, I felt like there's a malaise been, you know, over, over Australian federal politics at least since probably that two, early 2000s uh, time or, you know, state people t- seem to be sort of less politically active or interested. But um, what people kind of ignore a lot is their their own role and maybe, you know, changing uh, social policy or, or mm-hmm. taking action. And one thing I immediately liked about you when we met at Williamson is, you know, you're talking about how you would, you know, email your local MP and, you know, meet for coffee. And if something was on your mind, you'd, mm-hmm. you'd do something about it. If it was an issue that was pertinent to you, you'd kind of, you'd throw yourself into volunteering or, you know, put money in the right direction to help redress that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I feel like, I could do that a lot more, um, <laughs> but I think it doesn't matter how much you do. People will probably think you could always do more. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it probably goes back to you know my early years and, and being engaged in politics and understanding that as a citizen, I, you know, you have certain rights and responsibilities, um, and you're not just no one. You can um, you can participate. Um, you know, and I, I think. You know, there, there are lots of people who are sort of born into that, knowing that right and that entitlement. I, I'd like more people to to know that they have that right and to use it, and particularly people who perhaps, um, you know, learn in their daily lives that perhaps they don't have mm. as much of a right to a voice or, or participation. So, um, yeah, I guess I, I I haven't done it for a little while, but I um, yeah, I, I did. I, I do like writing emails. Um, <laughs> to to politicians or my local MP, but um, and I, I always say, don't write back to me because you know I don't want those. They send these really long 
Yeah, um, like a letter. Cut and paste things. Oh, really? Yeah, cookie cutter stuff. Like <laughs> it's just sort of like I don't, I don't, I'm not going to read it because you're just going <laughs> to explain that you're already doing something or yep. whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, on is- issues like the mandatory detention of people seeking our protection through the UN Refugee Convention. So what do they do, what do, they do like then when, if you say don't write me a cookie cutter? Because I would imagine that's They like write back to you. Oh, they'll give you an yeah. individual response? Yeah. That's oh, like no, a, no. You still get the cookie cutter and I'll just <laughs> write back and say I told you not to. And it'll just be a staff, staffer of their office. Yep. I mean, I sort of respect they're doing their job. Yep. Um, they have to respond. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's it's not very satisfying um, but we've a lot got, of the time. You know, but the fact that you're doing it is important. I know you had a little chuckle because it's an email, but I think it, it's a critical mass or a few of those emails gets these guys attuned to what's going on and what people are caring about in their community. Yeah. And it's like I've got a friend who um, he writes these really pithy uh, letters to the editor in The Age mm. and they're very short and they're usually, you, you know, about some fringe cause, but he, at least he, he, he gets published mm. and he keeps doing it and he's written – a whole stack of them now. He's been on the show before, so I won't say his name, but he'd probably love a shout-out. But uh, he, you know, it's that choice to engage. Mm. You've got, you got two choices. You can either do something or do nothing. Mm. And you're choosing to do something, which I really respect. Yeah, and look, I don't dispute – oh, not dispute. I don't um, overlook the fact that it does actually make me feel a bit empowered. It makes me feel good to yep. do it. Um, it's like – so that there's something in it. Uh, there's something in it for me, for sure. It's not um, – yeah, I enjoy I enjoy engaging um, and giving my opinion, as yeah. you probably know. Yeah, you do, uh, <laughs> no doubt. Very vocal, but um, <laughs> you you know you, you definitely like had a way of keeping people honest during our year together at Williamson, which I really enjoyed. Particularly one one mayor, I think, in a rural town certainly copped your your ire. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, you know this sounds. I held back so much. And that was so, you holding back. Yeah, right. <laughs> to take your word for it. But uh, I think, you know, at the right times during the year, like if, if ever there was a sort of social justice question in the balance, your voice would be heard. And I, I, I really enjoyed that. And I also liked going to Canberra and being introduced to your, you know, just so connected with the Timorese, um people and also the power brokers. So going to your your mate's embassy was fantastic. Yeah. What was his name again? Abel Guterres. Yeah. He just finished, um, he just finished his, being ambassador for East Timor yep. to Australia, Timor Leste, I should say. Um, yeah, he's re- retiring back to Timor and he's got, you know, amazing projects that he's going to take on and be really exciting to see what he does next. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, that's, it was such a privilege to be part of um, the solidarity movement, Australia supporting East Timor, because um, you, you did, you did get close to people that were, you know, great leaders and then went on to take on really significant roles for their country uh, once they became independent. That was really cool. Yeah. You've seen like a pretty wide spectrum of social change from activism to doing to funding. So yeah. I think you're a great person to ask about, you know, how, how are you now like in philanthropy or Lord Mayors? Are you enjoying that kind of lens to the, um, to the problem solving? You know, is there things you'd like to be doing more or less and kind of what your focus is? Yeah. Um, so I should say, I did say this to you earlier, so I'm four weeks into five weeks annually. <laughs> so my brain is sort of not in work mode, which is, which is good. It's, it's important. Yeah. Um, it is, look, honestly, I was saying this to someone over the, 
over my break that I don't think I've experienced a job where I've had such privilege. And I, I've always felt privileged to do any work that I have done. So, to, you know, to get a salary for for doing any of the work that I've done, I felt has been um, a privilege. But working in philanthropy where you have access to so many different people, uh, organisations, uh, sectors, and what you bring to the table is not only your sort of experience and insights but is funding is um, I can't describe it any other way than saying it's just incredibly privileged um, position to be in. And so I don't take that privilege uh, lightly. Like I, I sort of feel a strong sense of responsibility to um, to support uh, organisations in the best way that we can and in, in the ways that they're telling us that they need that support. Um, I feel that now being, you know, in the funding space that funders have a lot of responsibility of creating the work. So what we ask people to apply to us for money for um, is then what people apply to us for money for and what gets, gets funded. And so, um, you know, we, we were having some challenges um, in really wanting to encourage uh, uh, collaborative capacity building. Um, and we, we were funding a lot of organisations, small organisations. We funded some, we, we, we do, we fund some incredible capacity building projects with individual organisations. Um, and I was reflecting on it and I thought, well, but they, they all need a monitoring and evaluation framework or yeah. they all need some sort of useful information around how to develop their next strategic plan yeah. or they need a uh, CRM. Or mm-hmm. those. What could we achieve by bringing those organisations together or what could they build together yeah. that they could all benefit from? And so we have emphasised that um, we want to support collaborative capacity building now and I think that... We've got some really, or, or we're supporting organisations that support the sector. Um, that their job is to capacity build the sector, like um, Justice Connect, not for profit laws, example. Um, we've also just announced a three year. Um, we're supporting the Melbourne Business School to do three years of leadership. Um, course with not-for-profit leaders for purpose. I saw that. Sector Somebody leaders. said that to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to see. Yeah. So, um, you know, and that, and that's sort of what you can achieve by providing the space for everyone to come together and, it, and work out what it is that they need. And so so just going back to that point around it's, it's very much in our control and power to create the work out there um, by what we ask people to apply to us for funding for. So that's... I guess that's just something that I um, – that's a responsibility that, that I think is um, – Well, you've got the power to set – you're the agenda setters, so to speak. You kind of determine um, what types of things are funded by virtue of what you put up on your website as your sort of priority yeah. areas and your grant rounds and yeah, there's, a, right. there's a lot of um, power and responsibility there. We do and so therefore we have to be doing it in partnership with the sector that mm. we're funding. Mm. Um, but but you you do kind of um, what's interesting is you talk a lot now about capacity building and measurement and evaluation and strategy. Whereas like a lot of places, you know, five years ago or even now, still will mm. say we don't note we do not fund capacity building. Mm. So it's like you know they do still they may still have that um, dollars in dollars out mentality to impact. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I think I mean I, it, it's. 
pleasing um, to say that lots of um, philanthropic foundations in Australia do fund capacity building now or, or core funding, um, which is great. Um, yeah, so I, I guess we were sort of um, in that space for, for a while and now have, based on our experience of funding individual organisations have gone, well, how do we ramp this up? How do we actually achieve, um, you know, greater scale? But it's not just about, you know, you could, get five monitoring evaluation frameworks for the cost of one or something. It's also about supporting that collaborative space. And whenever I meet with senior staff or CEOs of the organisations that we're funding, they're continually asking for more opportunities just to get in the room together. And I think, well, that's a really easy thing that philanthropy can do. Yeah. Um, it's not high cost either. No. And we almost, like, I just want to be in the room. I don't want to speak. I just want to be in the room. I just want to listen. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I just I think imagine what we could achieve if we were regularly just bringing people together to, to talk about their common challenges or the key issues that they're all working on. Yeah. Um, giving them more space to do that um, I think would be a great thing to be able to do. Yeah, there's, it's certainly an interesting um, evolving space. But I think if you want to look at um, how you can affect change, I think from a system, systemic or like a systems thinking level, philanthropy is a fascinating case study, the role that plays in sort of yeah. being the intermediary between like dollars and change. Yeah. Um, so I'm always loving speaking to people about that who come on the podcast, especially those, you know, in the fray like mm. yourself. Mm. Um, what about, so, you know, we did Williamson together and I'm curious to ask you about, you know, your own leadership journey and sort of also your mix of um, what you do outside of um uh, Lord Mayor's, and, and I know you do another a number of other board and charitable things. Mm. Do you want me to talk about those things? Yeah, yeah, and, oh, and just where you're at, kind of in your own like um, thinking, like you know, do you have aspirations to lead an organisation at some point? Um, you know, you're obviously um, very much in the charity space as well as in the philanthropy space. I'm just, I'm just curious how it all fits together in, in your own kind of schema. Yeah. So, I mean, because I've um, done lots of different jobs, um, I I found Williamson was it came along at such a good time in my life and it was interesting to see a lot of other women of similar age, so sort of early 40s, um, in the course as well. Like it just we sort of get to that point where, you know, in my case I sort of my kids are of an age where they're off they're sort of um, – more and more independent and I'm at a point in my career where I can really um, start thinking about longer-term um, things as well. And, um, you know, I, I found what I got out of Williamson um, very early on was um, when we started to think about how what had shaped us um, in our lives, so going right back to childhood mm. and then what what were the key things in our lives that might have shaped us and therefore are determining in how we do leadership um, now. And I just, um, it was interesting, I thought, given that I've spent a lot of my career working with people who talked about the things that happened early in their lives and how that's impacted on them, um, I hadn't done that really myself and I just had some really powerful um, moments where I sort of realised um, what had shaped me, and then we did our true north, yep. um, which I, I I then used um, that awareness to to bring into my true north, which you know um, I know was 
a, a private thing in our group, but I'm happy to share that my true north was community mm. and I was doing a community leadership program. Mm. <laughs> so mm. I thought, all right, it's all working out. <laughs> um, so it, it then made me, I'd already, um, I was already pretty active in my, my local, my local school where my kids were, and um, but I decided early on that I would sort of try and step up and, and take on the role of president. And then I thought oh, I need to do a bit more. You know, I, want, I want to do something else that's in my community. I want something that will ground me more. And um, I, there's a local NGO, L2R Dance, that I've been connected to um, on and off from, for the, like the last eight years. Um, um, and they were looking for board members and I was I'd maintained a close connection to their their founder and CEO, Jacinda Richards, and I just thought, well, I've just done this True North to say that community is my True North. I need to, I need to do more in my community. So I stepped onto their board, and um, that's that's been great. Like that's been very fulfilling for me to be part of an organisation that supports the the development um, and engagement of, of local young people in, in the west of Melbourne through dance, um, not to mention the fact that, you know, way back from the 90s, you know, hip-hop was the genre that I was into and they do hip-hop dance and the artistic outputs that these young people uh, generate are just unbelievable. You've really got to come to a show. Yeah, not only that, I think I'll um, invite Jacinda to come on the podcast. You should. So yeah. I think I, I think even just I saw her speak at our um, yeah. graduation night thing and I thought she was um, I really connected a bit with, um, look, look, I can't dance to save myself. Or As long as I don't have to dance for the podcast or generally, <laughs> I'm happy to talk to her. The thing about podcasts, you don't have to dance. Perfect. Um, yeah, no, so Jacinda's, you know, she's the real deal in L2R Dance as far as, you know, your grassroots um, connection to community, responding to, you know, the, the young people that are participating in these programs and then developing them further. Um, it's just a really fantastic story and they're going through great growth. So, I, you know, I feel really privileged to be joining them at this time and um, they've got some, some good funding coming in and we're going to keep building on that and get more more funding. So it's it's nice now to use the skills that I've gained in philanthropy to then be Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, getting funding in. Well, you you would be such an elite, ideal board member for so many organisations now because you, you, like your spectrum of experience is just like it's on point. Especially in the not for profit space. I mean, imagine that you know anyone who's um, trying to get somebody just a quick shout out to Harriet. She uh, probably doesn't have any time, but um, unbelievable <laughs> overall candidate. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. We should get on a board together. That'd be fun. I'd love to be on a board yep, together. I think we should that. make that a plan for twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty two. That can be our strategic plan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be on a board That'd together. Be great. And when you're running an organisation, I'll join the board. <laughs> I'll stop. You'll probably yep. run one first, and I'll join you if, okay. if you'll have me. All if right, you'll have me. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> if you'll be so kind. So back to that question, I would, I mm. mean, I don't see myself, you know, necessarily striving to run an organisation, but I think, but that might happen, uh, you know, and, and I'm really open to that. I think it's more about leading, leading, you know, a group of people with a common cause towards affecting change. And so what that looks like could be, you know, within philanthropy, could be within government department, it could be within a not-for-profit organisation. Like I'm very open to, to sort of what that looks like and it's but it's the work um, and the people um, and that's the big thing that we learnt well one of the big things I learnt I should say from Williamson was the well they, they, those two things you said work and people I think they're the yeah. biggest mediators of well being generally you know yeah. like uh, are you do you love your work do you love the people in your life but also you know the people you work with is really important absolutely yeah, yeah. and um, and spending that time with the people 
um, or prioritising the people bit yeah. um, is also, you know, really important. And it's going back to that thinking about, you know, why charities haven't spent money on the communities affected by the bushfires is that, you know, when when what you need to do involves people, it takes time. You can't do it quickly. Mm. And if you do it quickly, it's my, you're more likely to get it wrong. You can't rush something that important to that many people. I think is the the big thing. Yeah, and and in a way, you also have to just be okay to sit with stuff yep. for a while. Like obviously, if you think about the bushfires, you know, the emergency services, the state government agencies, you know, we've got the defence force. They're all out there doing their job. People, many people can't return because it's unsafe to do so. But when they do return, I mean, I don't think they necessarily want a whole lot of people coming in and just taking over. They certainly do not want an enormous pile of jackets or jumpers. So <laughs> or I, I would soap. just not, not be giving you soap or jumpers. <laughs> hey, listen, we've got to wrap up because uh, you've got to get back to your holidays and I should go to work. Um, but yep. it's been amazing having you here today. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Oh, well, I guess I'm on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. that's about it. I've got a Twitter account, but I'm really hopeless on Twitter. So LinkedIn's the best spot to find you? Probably, yeah. Excellent. Do yeah. you want to shout out any websites or... There's a Lord LordMayor's Yeah, Lord Mayor's Charitable yeah. Foundation. You'll find out about um, the work that the foundation does. We're the Community Foundation for Greater Melbourne. Um, we find the key issues of the day. I'm Senior Program Manager looking after healthy and resilient communities. Um, and L2R as well. Do you want to just shout out the yeah, website? Yeah, L2R Dance. Yep. Um, it's, it's okay. They can search for L2R Dance. L2R.org.au. Yep. yep. Nice, yep. nice. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for dropping in. Thanks, Mike. Great, Great to speak to you. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 